So welcome to a special edition of Fire and Hole. Um, we are in our second year, second season, and Richard and I have decided to, um, following a conversation, to kind of uh, take the show, not in a new direction, but maybe expand our scope. Yeah, test out some new stuff. So you may have heard what was a one-shot that we did. It was called a One-Shot, where I interviewed uh, Gary Bloom uh, one-on-one and kind of did it because of distance. He's in New York. Uh, we're in Montreal. And then uh, most of you who listen to the show would definitely remember um, one of our favorite guests, uh, Kirsten Weisenberger, yeah. who uh, came through the show a while back, and we really hit it off with her. We love Kirsten. And uh, we immediately noticed her golden voice that we uh, both agree 100% is, uh, she's pretty much made for broadcasting, I find. Yeah, she's a natural. She could be on the radio easily. She's a smart lady, uh, educated. Um, she's also very, um, just, a, just a good person. And uh, she had talked about, um, you know, we, we definitely try to encourage whenever we have a guest that has kind of the moxie, or at least we think they do. Mm-hmm. We try to sort of let them know and that, that we'd love to hear more from them. And that led to a conversation, which led to what would be, I think we decided to call it a takeover. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. how, how does this work, Richard? So Kirsten came in with uh, a couple of her friends and uh, did uh, her own her own podcast, uh, Julian Switch and Alexis Hope. Um, so these these two, uh, one is a lawyer and the other one uh, an engineer. So two professional people who decided to leave their professions, to leave their nine to fives, and to join the uh, become sex workers, to join the sex trade. So um, an interesting interesting choice, interesting people um, with a you know very compelling story. And one that you may not expect, so it ended up being an interesting conversation uh, about, you know, what that's like. Why why would they leave, like, quote-unquote, successful professions, things that other people tend to aspire to, for to be sex workers, where, you know, there's a lot of stigma around that. So, what, you know, what caused them to leave, and what how how they like it are they are they happier what are some of the things that are better about it what are some misconceptions that people have uh around the sex trade which are many which are many yeah yeah for sure Um, and i think this is something that richard and i wanted to do anyway i mean we're always looking to sort of peel back um and get to the bottom of or get a fresh realistic perspective on either professions or worlds that we don't have any contact with or Myself as a filmmaker, I'm always interested in how people are portrayed in in films and stories and what it's actually like in real life. Mm. So at some point, I think we were, the conversation was that we wanted to talk to sex workers uh, or we wanted to talk to people in that world, which led to Kirsten uh, telling us that she had uh, two uh, close acquaintances of hers who were in that situation. And we thought together that the best setup would be that for her to actually interview them herself at once kind of two birds with one stone right yeah for sure so she gets to showcase some of her her skills that we believe she has and i think you'll agree that she has and also kind of provide this um kind of intimate setting safe setting for um, these two friends of hers to be able to give us a really raw inside look uh, at not only uh, something that gets stereotyped to hell but to see that there's people behind this and they're not all right. necessarily victims or they're not all hard, hard luck stories. 
there is such a thing as a person who chooses to work in the sex trade and that it's actually possible and all these sort of things. And yeah, so, that it can be empowering, that it can be a proof that you have sort of agency over your own corporeal being and you can yeah. choose to do what it is that you want to do. And and we're not even giving away um, uh, the, the, uh, the material here because uh, there's a bunch of little surprises as well. This is not just a straightforward uh, story of two sex workers. There are different little twists and turns in there that I think is going to make for really good listening. Of course. And we had uh, absolutely no ob objections to just essentially removing ourselves from the podcast. Yeah, it was an interesting experiment. I liked it. It was fun. It was interesting. It was odd being off the mic a little Very bit. Very strange. But I'm glad I'm glad it was Kirsten who was on there instead of us. Exactly. I felt a little dingo ate my baby a little bit. <laughs> but uh, after listening to the show, I'm happy to report that uh, it was in good hands. And uh, we'd like to thank Kirsten as well as her guests for sharing all of this really sort of personal stuff. Absolutely. So check it out. Uh, it's uh, the Fire in a Hole Takeover. That's right. Um, maybe the first uh, of a of a series. We're gonna sort of see where this goes, but uh, don't be shocked if you skip to the you know if you skip this intro and you're like, where the hell did they upload the wrong? Where's Where's Richard? Where's, where's Jason? Jason? What's going on? <laughs> Where's, so, the, where's the those bassy, silky voices? Mm, mm, mm. Mm. You'll have to do without them until next week. That's correct. <laughs> and uh, in the odd event that you like this takeover better than our actual show, please let us know and we'll bow out <laughs> like right. a couple we'll of just, gentlemen. We'll just retire. We'll just retire and hand <laughs> this over to Kirsten and um, call it a day. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> ready very ready oh uh, yeah richard was nice enough to let me host one of his podcasts and i'm really excited to be doing this um it's really sweet of him and he even gave me the power to decide what my podcast was going to be about or my co-opted podcast and i decided that i wanted to bring in two of my friends and favorite people who, may I call you also my favorite hookers? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> they're delightful. Um, we have Julian Switch and Alexis Hope with us. Um, they have really interesting stories. And um, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk, apart from the fact that they're just really fun and hilarious and um, interesting people. So say hello, guys. Don't be shy. Come on. Hello, world. <laughs> hello, world. Now you're all shy. <laughs> you were like so chatty just five minutes ago. Well, thank you for that very sweet introduction. Really? It's no different now. We're just having a conversation. We yeah, we end up have going through what a, a nice little program, a little hello world program right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to get it started. I'm fresh out of exam, so yes. I cannot think about computer science for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, Alexis is also doing a, a master's degree in computer science. Graduate so diploma. Your brain is all code right now, right? It is. It is. But uh, I'm not going to look at Java for a little while, and uh, I'm. Working full-time for the next three weeks, which is exciting. Nice to get back into my groove with that. You're not going to break into the robot voice during our podcast because of all the code that you've invested <laughs> in? <laughs> no. That'd be no. fun, though. No. 
That's a no. No No. robot voice. I don't do voices. Silly voices aren't my thing. (laughs) So we're kind of having a bit of a holiday celebration podcast because it's um, December 15th. We're 10 days away from the holidays. Um, How do you feel about the holidays, Julian? Okay. (laughs) We got that one. We got that one sorted. Yeah, no, actually, I'm not a huge fan of the holidays, to be honest. Um, I've never really had a great time in the holidays, more so recently in the last few years. But historically, it's never been a particularly great season. So... Um, And Alexis, what about you? How do you feel about the holidays coming up? What's your... Ooh, I've been pretty indifferent to the holidays most of my adult life. I don't know, since I got away from the, like, living close to my parents, I haven't done much to celebrate. But last year and this year, I've had a really nice Christmas with my partner. And so it'll be probably another quiet day in like that. And I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to celebrating a little bit more than I usually do. Yeah, because your partner, who I know also, is super cozy, loves to cook, super nurturing. I can imagine you guys making like an amazing little Christmas nest over there. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my God. That's actually really funny because when I said that the last couple of years have been better over Christmas, it's also because my partner has been making the Christmases Uh, better. (laughs) So look at that. (laughs) More things we have in common. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a big thing. Like, and, uh, you know, I have kids now and, and it's the same kind of things. Like, it's all about them and what we do together. And I mean, not that you couldn't have a solo Christmas that was really wonderful and meaningful, but it helps when you've got, you know, other people you're sort yeah, of yeah, building sure. and, it with. And people who are willing to celebrate it sort of the way you like to celebrate it, right? Like, you yeah. make it a, a really happy, meaningful time. Sometimes yeah. you, get, you can get, like, from my problems, I get stuck in traditions that I'm not super excited about. And so um, it becomes sort of this exercise in jumping through hoops over things that I don't actually want to jump through hoops for. What, so. like going to church? Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Try to put childhood <laughs> scars. I'm so sorry. Into Catholic church. I'm sorry. We're supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize to all no, the Catholics. Well, it's nice, to, it's nice to build new traditions, too, with chosen yeah. family. Like, I'm going to be at yours sure. again for Christmas Eve, yeah. which I'm excited about. That was so much fun last year. Yeah. It's, it's going to really be more good. fun this year. Yeah. I know it already. <laughs> That's awesome. But it's funny, you talk about holiday traditions opening up your trauma file and being like a kind of difficult subject, but it's funny that we're actually diving into what to me seems like a difficult subject, although you guys are extremely comfortable with the fact that you were both sex workers mm-hmm. and that you are also coming from professional backgrounds, which is really, really interesting to me. That And I'm wondering if that's a trend. I want to explore that a little bit, how an engineer and a lawyer, in fact, decide to walk away mid-career from their jobs and and become sex workers. And that's what, so how does that happen, Alexis? (laughs) (laughs) I I get to go first. Um, I think, I think it's an increasing trend. I also think it's something that that's existed for a long time and that just because it's not part of that stereotype of that cultural trope of about what a sex worker looks like, we don't think of sex workers as also being people who have successful professional careers alongside it before, after. Like, there's a really diverse background of people who are in sex work. Has it always been this way or is it this a new... I mean, I think so. There's definitely some historical precedent where sex workers were middle class in a way that especially women weren't otherwise in their time periods. And it's a way to... 
you know, there's probably some ways in which you also we just you know once once you make it more respectable, it stops being called sex work or stops being called prostitution, right? Do you start exactly? Using, you start using different names for it, like you know, yeah. I don't know, being a courtesan, I don't know, Careworkers mm-hmm. or, or whatever, um, right? companions, right? Or, or mistress or whatever, yeah. right? Like yeah. you know, it, at some point the, the the line the line at some point can get a little blurry, and we I think that sometimes in the most sort of like acceptable forms of of that kind of exchange, you just don't call it prostitution outright. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think also that there's a, a just an increasing popular awareness of especially less explicit forms of sex work where maybe the people involved don't even consider themselves sex workers, but mm-hmm. like people who are sugar babies in university or mm-hmm. dabble in that or mm-hmm. trading pics online, but for money. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a spectrum there from being like we are full-time sex workers who have dedicated time and resources to building a very professional image versus stepping in and out, doing it alongside other things, doing it very informally. And that may be on the client side too, where clients don't necessarily acknowledge that they're actually paying for touch or for sexual services you know there may be it may be on both sides where someone is professionally giving a service that they're not really you know it's a massage or it's sending photos and at the same side on the client side they may not actually view it that way as well or in the same context yeah of course yeah i actually you know other than uh, alexis i don't actually know any other professionals who quit mid-career as you said and become sex workers but yeah. I'm sure it happens, right? I, th- I think that you probably have more uh, people working their way through university and that sort of thing um, yeah. happening on, 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 like, you know, through professional degrees or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And well, you see a lot of people who just do this full time for long yeah. periods of time, yeah. like independently of school because they yeah. didn't end up get, getting a job in their field for, for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah highly educated people. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or not, right? Yeah. People out of high school who didn't go in another direction and decided to do this instead like especially if you don't have a higher degree the money in sex work is comparable to what I made as an engineer and like there's even room to move within that and that's not something people without access to university educations can necessarily get into Mm-mm. fair enough no I mean I guess the question is in sort of mainstream society, we sometimes assume that sex work happens out of financial necessity or need. Um, and I think it's really interesting when someone comes to it not out of financial necessity. I mean, yes, you you both quit your job, so you do need to make a living. But it wasn't like you didn't have a good living and a skill set that, that you could rely on. Well, I think one important thing about how that's framed, both as a stereotype and, and in how we do it, is that sort of everyone is forced to work out of necessity, right? Yeah, yeah. We live in a capitalist society. We need money to put food on the table to yeah. pay rent. Except and if you're independently wealthy, what doesn't happen for you? <laughs> which, which not all of us are so fortunate to be. <laughs> but yeah, it's n- not that... The, the idea that, the say, the financial coercion is greater in sex work is... A kind of a stereotype, but I think that's also about erasing the level of financial coercion in in jobs, yeah. in paid labor in general. In general, well, <clears throat> yeah. I, I think that it also goes to this idea of stigma, right? There's a sort of a stigma attached to being a sex worker, and so there's this assumption that because the stigma is so great, the only reason why you would ever accept that stigma is if you were under you know financial strain to do so. 
But there also. are stigmas attached to all kinds of employment. Right, but not everybody sees that stigma and experiences it the same way, right? And yeah. presumably, I mean, I don't want to speak for Alexis, but I certainly don't see that stigma. I don't feel it, you know, and... and so it, it doesn't bother me, right? I certainly, that is not a factor for me in that, in that way. Yeah, yeah, but when you're sex positive and you're working inside a community in an environment that, that feels the same way, mm-hmm. I mean, the stigma kind of disappears pretty quickly. Yeah, where you're, that's also yeah. a bit of an, but that's a bit of an echo chamber effect too, right? Yeah, I think I mm-hmm. keep a pretty tight bubble. I've, honestly, most of my friends in the last year, year and a half have been other sex workers, most of my new friends. So I think... Even if you step a little bit outside of that, you can still see a lot of whorephobia and a lot of stigma around sex work, even in otherwise progressive communities, like in non-monogamous communities mm-hmm. or in queer communities. There's still there's still stigma there. And I think all three of us have very tight social bubbles, mm-hmm. so that might not touch our circles as much, but <clears throat> even just outside of that, there can be a lot of that going on. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I know that we live deep inside our bubbles. (laughs) And um, that's why I think it's really interesting that you, the three of us know each other really well and that we can talk quite openly about our lives. And then to a lot of people, our lives might seem really unusual. Yeah. Um, Well, they're not, they're not average, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't use the word normal, but. (laughs) I don't know, maybe. (laughs) But I don't think. Our lives are outside the standard deviation that's right more more than one standard deviation of the mania (laughs) yeah which i find really yeah i always think about that i always think about levels of um comfort and understanding about other people's lives and the things that might make me really uncomfortable are fully normal and acceptable to to others you know i mean what makes me really uncomfortable is is a life in the suburbs where you have to drive <laughs> everywhere honestly like that makes me insanely itchy all over sometimes i'm at home because i work from home and i i listen to the traffic report and i just think oh my god this is horrible what are these people doing to themselves and i mean some of them are doing it out of necessity as well i mean it's just where they live and where they have to work but most think- people would think that a life like that is expected I, I i think i've seen you i think i've seen you avoid parties because they were in the suburbs uh, <laughs> yes and my apologies to my friends whose Aww. party i recently missed i i may be suburb phobic a little bit <laughs> yeah i know um but you know i think that i just it becomes really amorphous to me in terms of what one social group considers the norm versus another. Mm-hmm. After a while, I, I kind of lose my compass a little bit. Yeah, I think I think that happens to all of us. Um, but it's important to keep that in mind. Like my parents have been super supportive, but I know lots of people who can't tell who are in similar situations to me, who live in Montreal, who wouldn't tell their parents, who like couldn't be out about that or mm-hmm. well i mean in my case i'm out about it but that means that we're, i'm not talking to my parents either it's we're yeah. not on speaking and terms so <laughs> or people who struggle with how to manage sex work and romantic relationships or social circles mm-hmm. losing friends over it it still happens yeah. even in big cities even in yeah. progressive circles oh i bet oh yeah i mean um when you talk about parents just this morning I was speaking with one of my parents and I told them what I was doing tonight. I said, I have two very close friends who are sex workers and I'm going to interview them in a podcast tonight. And he had a lot of questions. Really? <laughs> he I'd, was I'd, like, I'd love to. Kind of fascinated. Yeah. And I remember, I should have written them down, but I did remember some of them. And he wanted to know 
primarily how does one age with a um, profession that's often around beauty and youth? Ooh, I like that question. Mm-hmm. I like that question because I think I think there's this really common trope for people in 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 many parts of the sex industry, in porn, in stripping, in full service sex work, that oh, that's a nice job for now. What are you going to do when you're 30? What are you going to do when you're 40? What are you going to do when you're 50? Or like that it's some kind of job that you can only have for a couple of years. Yeah. Which, and I mean, definitely the bulk of sex workers are younger. And definitely that's the bulk of what's pushed in organized uh, situations like agencies hire young women. But in the independent world, there are a lot, there are a lot of people in the mature category mm-hmm. who market themselves that way. And just, I mean, a lot of diversity in general in terms of body type, in terms of style, mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of services. Well, yeah, There's that's so it. much more range like, than yeah. just that like narrow, tall, thin, blonde, 18 to 21. Yeah, I mean, candy is great, but at some point you might want to have a tart. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Julian's a funny man. Yeah, I Always. <laughs> I've been binge watching, by the way, by the way, I've been binge watching DS9 and just every time I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm going to call you Bashir maybe. <laughs> Actually, Ju- Julian Switch. But, yes, you know. exactly. Actually, strangely enough, not entirely unconnected. I, <laughs> I had been actually watching a lot of DS9 when I came up with that name. So, you know, maybe, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know what DS9 is. Oh, oh Deep Star Space Trek Nine. Deep oh. Nine. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I'm a few episodes from the end of the series. Oh, exciting stuff. It's really, it's really good. I'm a big nerd. <laughs> but yes. I guess the other thing that I didn't explain to my parent mm-hmm. today when I tried to tell him what I was doing tonight is that you offer specialized services, right? I mean, yeah. if you're just a streetwalker who's doing, you know, calls, you know, as yeah, they come, can we, maybe I'm, the range I'm, is yeah, limited, I think right? They're going to take exception to just yeah, the streetwalkers. Can, can we, like, sorry. pause here? And, like, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, like, there, no, I mean, street-based sex workers uh, and survival sex workers are a huge and important part of... Yeah, the industry sure. okay. is like a huge like source of where like grassroots organizing and sex work organizing comes from. Okay. Mm-hmm. And organizations that include them and are, are built by like working class sex workers are so important. Uh, I think especially especially in recent years with uh, like Secret Diaries of a Call Girl, the Girlfriend Experience, all these mm-hmm. this media representation, we, we've sort of moved into portraying sex work is it's only okay if you're middle or upper class. Mm, okay. Right. And it's only okay if it comes with these trappings. And the, Yeah, it's like it becomes part of the privilege of... Yeah, and then <laughs> yes, just you know. like yeah, erases exactly. and like increases stigma against sex workers with drug addiction, sex workers who work on the streets, who work out of their homes, who don't charge as much as Julian and I do. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to like remember that they're super valuable. They're not like, I'm not better than a sex worker who charges half of what I do. Right. right. But I guess in terms of longevity of your career, if you're offering a specialized service. Yeah, yeah. sorry. No, actually, I didn't want to before I forget to go back to that first question that you had just because, it, you know, it's, I think, a little bit different also for Alexis and I because I'm sort of in the more, I, like, I, I, I haven't, I'm yet to get a call from, uh, from a woman to 
for my services, right? Right. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm mostly servicing the gay market, right? Or I right. guess I, sh- I should probably disclose I'm bisexual or pansexual. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, th- so that 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 actually is a little bit different. I think it's you had less of an age-based thing. There's certainly sort of you know a demand for a certain kind of age, but there's also sort of categories of people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like the gay porn and gay sex. Ten- it, when it's sold, it tends to get segmented into body types more mm-hmm. than or or more than acts. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, straight porn has a tendency to be sort of the uh, yeah the Barbie doing this, the Barbie doing yeah, that, the Barbie. Barbie. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's Barbie. You know, I, I, if I want to generalize a little bit, where, whereas the gay porn <laughs> tends to be tends to be more segregated in terms of okay, whether you got your twinks and you got your bulls and you got your bears and you got your otters or whatever, right? And it's yeah. all basically the categories of which body type do you want to see doing all of these things, right? Or and people experience, have yeah. or experience, right? And those body types, you know, they're they're sort of if you want to call them fetishes or categories for body types that go all the way into you know the dads and the granddads and yeah. stuff, right? So, well, in New York, I think. I sent you that article it was um like the escort of the year mm-hmm. was a man in his late 40s oh, yeah, easily yeah. and yeah. yeah fiercely sexy daddy sure you know, which also like, a man with a lot of greed so yes exactly <laughs> i mean yeah and so it also depends on on who your customer is i suppose and yeah, yeah, for you sure. know what standards of beauty are in your in your community yeah and even those you know i think that even those people who are naturally drawn to and there's nothing wrong being drawn to the young pretty boy or girl whatever it is the standard you know stuff like i was saying earlier with my joke about candy and tart is that you know <laughs> if you're if you're an avid consumer of sexual products of any kind there is a habituation that happens sooner or later and you you, you want to experience something new at some point right so mm-hmm. there, then you have the offshoot uh, markets for anything else age or related or anything yeah. else right and i think different demographics cater to different demographics yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. like there are certain clients who want to see those people and there are certain clients who want to see older escorts or different body types or mm-hmm. whatever it is and just anecdotally from my friends who've been in the industry longer or who've started older like often the work gets better against stereotypes and people mm-hmm. come more into their own more into their career settle into their branding and how they feel about their work and are doing the work that they most want to do mm-hmm. like everything yeah, like <laughs> practice makes perfect right? but you shared the article with me about mm-hmm. the parisian pro dom who was in her 50s or 60s, right? Oh, and the, was, had the, an ex- the, I believe that one is 88. Oh my God, really? Yeah, there's, this, there's this sort of yeah. legendary uh, dominatrix in Paris. Or I think she's outside of Paris. Somewhere in France, in France yeah. Who's, yeah, like 88 and still doing Chicken. her thing. <laughs> yeah. Chicken and and probably <laughs> doing her thing like on a completely different level than I could do. I mean, I've been yeah. involved in BDSM for a little over five years at this point, but I mean, what's that compared to 50 years of experience, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. yeah, and I'm sure she has a very select clientele and she probably gets paid very, very well to do some really amazing I things. Imagine. You know, just, like just her skill set. I'm, I'm going to go back to saying, you know, her life, I would imagine, may resemble what I would see a courtesan doing, right? Yeah, like that's exactly. Probably mm-hmm. more. Yeah, that's like a good term. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Have you ever used sexual services for pay? No. Have you? No. <laughs> there have been times in my life where I felt a little bit like a sugar mommy. Hmm. Only because the community I hang out in, a lot of them are artists. And, um, you know, they don't maybe earn a lot of money. And there are times in my life where I've been happy to pay for my partners. 
to mm-hmm. go out and mm-hmm. do fun things because I want to do fun things and I want to yeah. make them happy and we're going to just go and do fun things together. True. So, no, I haven't paid for sexual services and I never saw it that way. I never saw it as like paying someone or exchange. giving them gifts or taking them out in exchange for sex. No, mm-hmm. it was always just like, well, I can afford it and you can't, so let's go out and have fun. But yeah. sometimes it felt a little bit like it's crossed the line. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. I like this question. Can we go around the table? Yes. What about you, Julian? <laughs> uh, well, not a, not outside of strip clubs. Uh, I used to frequent strip clubs quite regularly. But aside from that, no. Hmm. Yeah. So that's, how about you? I have. Oh, I mean, do tell. Besides buying my porn. Um, yeah. Pay for your porn. <laughs> <laughs> well, or hire us afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> or both. One of the two. <laughs> at least. Um, yeah, actually, I, I had an experience where I, at the end of a tour, actually, in another city, I decided to celebrate by hiring another escort as a way to unwind. Oh my God, nice. I love that. It was really, really good. It was a really great experience that's because cool. especially being on tour can be kind of much more intense. I than assume a female escort? Yes. yes. Yeah, that's um, hot. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. And it was just, I mean, honestly, we spent a lot of it just talking, talking shop, which is terrible because I talk about work way too much. Um, But it was just nice to be like at the focus of someone else's attention and not navigating that awkward, like, are we flirting? Are we not flirting? Especially because so many of my friends are sex workers. I'm really, really hesitant to flirt with anyone too much in my immediate circles, even when there's mutual attraction. Because I just understand what sexual labor is like and mm-hmm. what emotional labor is like and what expectations can be like. Mm-hmm. So I'm very tentative to approach friends. So just in a situation where it's like, yes, we've agreed to the rate and here you go. And we can just spend this time together and do whatever. It was so good. And it was so nice Aww. to be seduced by Did someone. Did you have like a pajama party? No, you got seduced. Yeah. <laughs> I, also, I also got seduced. But a lot of it was just talking and hanging out and like slightly cuddling and Aww. getting to know someone it's it was a really great experience and it was nice to be on the other side of it too because if you spend so much time as the provider like mm-hmm. yeah it's nice to receive yeah it's and it's just it's good to know what it feels like to be a client and yeah. like the steps to go through and to have that power um would you call it power hmm. i don't know because I, I mean yeah everyone has power in this Kind well, of I think yeah. I think I think power doesn't necessarily come from the mm-hmm. person who's like the fact that you're paying for something doesn't necessarily mean that you have power in the moment because it okay. depends. I think it depends on who wants what, how much, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, one of my things and that, too. Just because just, you're paying doesn't mean you're the person who wants something the least. <laughs> mm-hmm. You may want something else entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. One of my things was just wanting to go through the booking process, being like the best possible client I could be, not sending too many emails, trying to keep it concise and to the point, tipping like. 20%, you know, all the all the things that, like, I like, especially when clients do for me. I mm-hmm. wanted to do that for a provider. Mm-hmm. Sure. When you talk about emotional labor, um, and did you call it sexual labor as well? Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? How does that feel? And what is that exactly? What Like, what kind of responsibility do you feel towards your clients? I think I have a lot of, I don't know, I think I have some complex responsibilities towards my clients in sex work obviously we're responsible for confidentiality and discretion and privacy and also often being a support for people in a way that's unusual and there aren't good models for one of my favorite 
clients has booked me another t- a number of times just to talk and we have these really good conversations and I'm glad to be able to support someone like that who's in a difficult space like a very transitional space in his life and just being there at the same time when people expect emotional labor sexual labor lots of texting pics whatever outside Mm. of that context when it's sort of beyond the bounds of what we've negotiated that can be really challenging to manage Mm -hmm. because especially if it's someone like you like and you want to keep around you have to navigate how much you're giving and how much you're getting and how everyone feels about that and keep without hurting anyone's feelings yeah for sure yeah, it's interesting. I think that it, <clears throat> the idea of like sexual labor and emotional labor depends a lot on how you approach it as the as the sex worker, as the sex works, as the sex provider, a sex worker, right? Mm-hmm. You like, I think that depending on the client that I've had, some of them come in and it's very clearly about the sex. It's physical. That you you can just you know you have to sort of vibe off the person who comes in, right? Mm-hmm. They don't. You can tell when somebody doesn't want to talk when they're coming in, coming in, and they just want to fucking get out and sure they want to have three minutes of get you, get to know you conversation. But that's that's about it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's people who come in and they want to have a connection. They want to know that you're human right and maybe they even like they don't necessarily always expect it but they certainly appreciate if you get genuine affection and intimacy in there somewhere now i i happen to be the kind of person who like i that that stuff just comes out of me in some in some context mm-hmm. right so like i'm actually very happy and i feel very energized to do some of the emotional stuff like i prefer the clients with whom i can connect and who am i with whom i can yeah within reason and mm-hmm. boundaries keep like texting and you know it's mm-hmm. fun to have a relationship established right yeah um, definitely yeah and it's there's a certain like for me i find those like i find those relationships far more rewarding than the straight up sort of you know the proverbial wham bam thank you ma'am kind of (laughs) (laughs) approach yeah i think definitely that's a thing that maybe isn't portrayed in you know media representations of of sex work is that often we build relationships with our clients and see them over long periods of time and i like truly truly enjoy spending time with like a great number of my clients and i think it's all about finding the connection in every session whatever you can do to relate to that person and meet them where they're at Mm -hmm. is really what makes it enjoyable for me. And there's an interesting thing that happens also that's sort of like a almost like a shrinks office effect. <laughs> but and, and, and strangely enough, I think this actually connects back to the stigma thing, which is this sort of idea that like because it's a perceived as a highly stigmatized thing to do to mm-hmm. be a sex worker or to even purchase sex work services. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, if, if you've paid somebody to do this and you're already out on the sort of quite quote unquote margins of society doing this thing, well, then you can really say anything to your hooker that you might think of. It's like a safe space. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. What, yeah. Like, what could you possibly not say to somebody you're paying for sex? Like, what could yeah, you admit you, that, you know, that it, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, that it sort of it, it takes the pressure yeah. off and it sort of inadvertently creates a safe space where some people yeah. are like, oh, well, you know, I don't know about you're the guy who comes in and just talks. Right. But like that might be part of it. He's just like, OK, well, I've paid this person for their time. And I've paid them to do something that I consider, you know, that stigmatized. So I might as well tell them everything else that's on my on my on my heart, you know, on my, yeah. on my weighs on my soul. <laughs> well, yeah, you've purchased that time, and you're sharing that time with a human, and that sharing could happen in all kinds of different ways with different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think the companionship, genuinely, the companionship side of sex work is often overlooked and underrated, but it's a really important and valuable part of what sex work is. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I've seen documentaries about the reality of sex work and how you do see these long-term multi-year companionships that happen. I mean, it's it's much more complex 
than what's often portrayed in the mainstream. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially since it, it, it is this secret thing that, in fact, a lot of people are doing. So many people are hiding their, you know, their lives from from their friends and family, and that's fine. I mean, some people, that's part of the pleasure and the thrill, mm-hmm. but that it's so widespread that you're going to have a massive diversity of people with different needs. Sure. Yeah, and I think I think that's a really interesting thing that we, we don't think about and we don't talk about is who clients are because clients are literally anybody. Mm-hmm. And often people who are very outside of the industry have this idea that like there are regular men and there are men who see sex workers. And it's it's really not like that. Yeah. Clients come from all walks of life. They have all these kinds of different needs. Yeah. And they're just regular people who want to connect to someone. And they're way and people pay for sexual services way more often than you might guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the percentage of the population who's seen a sex worker at some point is probably pretty high. And mm. I mean, it kind of has to be to sustain this many sex workers in the industry, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. the work <laughs> is there. The demand is there. Yeah. It's a massive industry. Yeah, yeah. It, it really truly is. Yeah, I remember taking a taxi from Brussels to the village that I used to live in in Belgium. And in the middle, I can't remember the name of the town, but it's really not far from where the UN is located. There's this town. It's like a highway strip. And it's kind of like a little tiny Reno or something. (laughs) Not Las Vegas, but Reno with these old signs. And you go through this road. It was like the middle of the night and we're taking the taxi back. And they're like all of these brothels, like 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 a dozen brothels all the way along the road because, you know, um, sex work is legal in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not quite as legal as in, in the Netherlands, but pretty close. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 in my, like, 20s, I was blown away by this. I was like, oh, my God, if there's this many brothels and they're they're this big and they're this open, they've got to stay in business somehow. Yeah, I mean, right. think of how many people. It was close to the airport and it was close to the UN. So you have all these international people coming Absolutely. through, right? Absolutely. that location. Yeah. And uh, it was really an eye-opener for me is to say, well, God, think of the, just run the numbers on this mm-hmm. and realize yeah, sure. just how many people are, are visiting these places. True. And that's yeah. just one spot, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. One little pocket. Yeah. Um, so curious though yeah thought there were like these weird little motels with big tacky signs with like a <laughs> blinking naked lady kind of like you know yeah it was really awesome club super sex neon gone wrong pretty well <laughs> yeah it was just like one night with one memory like burning through this village but it's burned in my mind cool um i don't know is there are there things you guys want to talk about that are important to you they don't have to be related to sex work they can be related to all kinds of other things that, that are pertinent that when you said, I'm going to do a podcast with Kirsten and I want to talk about, uh, you know, like I feel strongly about these things. I was actually expecting you to ask all the questions. So no, I oh. didn't think. Of- <laughs> I was also kind of expecting you to lead the general outline of our, our discussion. We're going to bounce so, right back to you, Kirsten. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm in trouble. Okay. Um, Take team. So, okay, no, I do have a question. I guess I was maybe avoiding asking it because it's the thing I think about is like, what happens when you have a client who you are really not attracted to? Have well, you ever had that happen? I, I have. I have one word for you. What? Viagra. (laughs) 
maybe for you that yeah, works. Know, exactly. Maybe that's, it doesn't that's, work that's for particular everybody. to my side of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, we've talked about this. Yeah, sure, about yeah, yeah. like no, yeah. but I mean, you know, I'm not gonna. Yeah, what, what do you do when you have a client who you're no pun intended, but actually no, pun very much intended. I think for me, what I do is much less about the attraction, much more about the connection. Yeah. So I can find something to connect to in almost all of my clients. Yeah. Like we can find some thing to talk about, some way to get to know each other that works. Yeah. There have been, I mean, in the course of my career, there have been a few people that I really couldn't connect with. And... It's, I mean, it's not the end of the world. It's just sort of, it can be kind of unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. It can sometimes be a little frustrating. Just if there's not the right kind of give and take, or if someone wasn't clear about their expectations and really wanted something quite different than what they asked for, or there, there can be these mismatches. Mm -hmm. But by and large, I think I make enough of a connection with my clients that it's, it's fun that yeah. we get on, that yeah. it's great. Yeah, I should maybe clarify. Yeah, the, the, the thing I was saying earlier about wanting to sort of have a chance to talk to people and build a relationship and stuff, yeah, that's about the connection, right? But in my particular case, uh, I can't possibly on a physiological level fake arousal, right? Mm -mm. Like if, if, if that bit has to work and it's not, you know, I can have the best connection on a, on a, on a intellectual, even spiritual level mm -hmm. with somebody, an emotional level, right? I can find them very attractive that way, right? But, you know, at some point things have to do things right yeah <laughs> yeah so in my case it's a little bit different it's it goes beyond that just for physiological reasons right yeah that makes a lot of sense i'm exactly um and some people don't want connection too right there oh, are people yeah. who yeah. you can't connect with because they're not really connectable i mean there are people who just have their own emotional world and they have needs that may be physical uh, maybe it's emotional for them. It just isn't for you. Mm -hmm, sure. You know, I mean, we're all. But very like you complex. know, like they, they say, they say this. It's it's kind of a cliche that they say the brain is the biggest erogenous zone. Right? <laughs> yeah. But but it's kind of true too, right? Like it, it is absolutely. It, and that's part of I think what that connection that you that you were talking about, Alexis, right? Like, like having that connection and meeting the person or calling it building a relationship or whatever. Yeah. Right? It, that's that's where that that helps, right? Whatever else is happening, it's very important what's going on in your mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my parent asked another question, which we kind of touched on. Okay. I know. I love it. I love my parents. I love I, getting them to look at things I'm doing sometimes and like say, well, what do you think about this? And see what they say. I mean, they're pretty hip, but they still <laughs> have their other perspective on things. So he also asked, um, what was it that made you want to leave your very solid professional careers? and become sex workers you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to but like to you know most middle-aged or you know older people who have built a life of stability around their careers and their possessions and all that kind of thing you know it does seem like a very radical decision when you've already got that happening for yourself I think for me, it was just realizing that at that point in my life, the kind of work I was doing wasn't sustainable for me. Yeah. And I worked with some great, dedicated people, and we did some interesting work. But at the end of the day, it was really, really negatively affecting my health and my quality of life. And I didn't, 
Like I'd lost this incredibly active and engaged social life in my whole world to become my job, which is a really weird and terrible thing to happen in your early mm. 20s. And I think it's the case for a lot of people in the current job market. That's just sort of what it's like right now. And so sex work was something, I mean, I think it had been in the back of my mind maybe for a long time. And something just given my communities, given my experience in BDSM and non-monogamy, seemed to be something I would be naturally inclined towards anyway. It was a bit of a natural progression. But it was um, a friend, actually, a, a longtime friend, getting into it and telling me about it and connecting me with other people that really uh, just made me decide. And mm. I spent a year planning how I would do sex work, not deciding. Like, I, mm. I decided pretty quickly once I'd met the right people, but just mapping out how I would do it and how I could transition out of my job and into doing sex work really cleanly and hit the ground running and also give myself like the time in between to recover, which was yeah. really, really important to me. I did some traveling and I just got out of my comfort zone for a while and then I came back to Montreal ready to do something completely different. And you did some pretty intense traveling too. Yeah, I um, did. I did the Camino de Santiago. I walked 1,200 kilometers from Toulouse to the coast of Spain. And that's like, okay, I'm done being an engineer. I'm going to walk 1,200 miles or kilometers? <laughs> kilometers, kilometers. Kilometers. And then like change my job completely yeah. and do something yeah. else. That's intense. The, the Camino was a, a good a good thing to break away. I, and I think a lot of people do this. I, I love that it's a religious pilgrimage. It is. I'm, I'm, I, a lot of people do it for secular reasons. I did it for secular reasons. No, no I know, but, but, but originally it's a religious pilgrimage, it's a, it's a, it's yeah, a, it's a, it's a Catholic right? pilgrimage. So, yeah, so I, I just, um, yes. And I mean, it still is for many people. Uh, there's right. nothing wrong with that. I find something slightly iconoclastic about going on the Camino right before starting and getting the ground running as a sex you did it <laughs> Yeah, you did it alone. I did, yeah. I was completely alone. I didn't really take up with other people for more than a few hours at a time. But it was just, it's nice to, you know, put your whole world on your back and just walk. How did it change you? Mm, I think it just gave me my, the space away from my life that I needed. Some people come back from it really changed. I don't, I don't think I did. It was just getting away and doing something different. And I, it's this kind of thing I'm inclined towards too. I do really long bike tours sometimes by myself, long days on the road, very minimal interaction very minimalist travel style. It's just something that kind of arduous athletic challenges sort of jive for me. Wow. Well, what about you? What was your transition like? Yeah, so I think my context is a little bit different because I'm in my mid-30s now. Um, and so I had a few different You're things. You're so now. old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry. <laughs> speaking of being able to... do <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're in your mid-20s, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly, so... Um, yeah, so this, there you go. Right there, we have, we already have a market segmentation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but you know what? I, I've always been a sexual person. I think I, I can like I remember having sexual fantasies when I was like a five year old kid, kind of thing, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and it's always been a big part of my life for reasons I can't explain. Um, in fact, in, you know, jokingly in high school, I used to say that if I'd been born a pretty girl, I'd be in, I'd be going to LA to do porn right away <laughs> after, after I graduated high school. Um, somehow, I think at the beginning, I thought that I didn't that like being a guy. Somehow, porn was not for me, or you know, um, so 
but yeah, but then like you know, and then later I got sort of on the I went to university and I started doing stuff mm-hmm. and it sort of got onto that train, um, and it sort of went back to this thought. And throughout this time, I'd been um, I've been active sort of as soon as I've been of age. I've been active in a, in a, in the BDSM community, and I've always been you know a, a very well, very promiscuous person. Uh, later in my 20s, I came to polyamory. So, you know, that's sex has always been sort of my unofficial biggest hobby, right? In job interviews, they say, so what are your hobbies? And in my head, I suddenly say sex. And then I follow up out loud with yoga. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's sort of like that. So that was sort of going on in my life. And then uh, about a year ago, I actually met and fell in love with a girl who was a sex worker. And uh, so that, that sort of came became an active part of my life and sort of brought me back to the initial idea when I was younger that somehow that I had this right and I was like oh yeah I forgot about this and I I could do this why can't I do this I can do this and I was getting pretty fed up with my with the context of um well I you know I I I find the legal profession to be fairly conservative and stodgy and not actually uh not really ripe for innovation um Mm -hmm. and I'm the kind of person who likes new new ideas and innovating and pushing boundaries and and getting out there. So after six years of frustratingly trying to <laughs> do something interesting in my profession, I've decided to go on and do this instead. Yeah. Right? And um, I mean, there's also the flexibility, which is a huge part of it for me. Just being your own boss, making your own schedule. Yeah. They kind of, I mean, and what people don't often see is how much administrative work goes into it, how much money goes into it to to build up the image and the presence and the photos and all of that. That's a big investment, actually. It's a huge investment. I don't even want to tell you how much my annual expenses are, but I track that in my spreadsheets. Um, yeah, you're you're, you're like more, me. You're more organized than I am. I'm not, I'm not there yet. <laughs> oh I've, I've got to clean up my books for uh, my accountant soon. So, <laughs> but it it allows you a kind of flexibility, it and free time and self direction that. It's just really hard to come by in the working world these days. I don't know if I want to do a nine to five job again where I long term where I have to sit at a desk yeah. every day. Concurrent. So you're happier. Oh, yeah. Doing what you I are you both happier? Infinitely. Yeah. So I've, much I've, I've said this yeah. be, best professional choice I've ever made. Likewise. I mean, in, yeah. in lots of ways, I mean, you know, the, like I said, I've, I've always been a very sexual person. I've just started getting paid for what I used to do for free. <laughs> Basically, um, I definitely have moments where I think that too. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see how that could possibly go wrong. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I Amazing. think sex work saved my life. I'm not even <laughs> joking. It, I mean, even if not in a purely literal sense, it turned my life around and pulled me out of a really dark place and connected me with some of the most amazing, intelligent, industrious human beings I've ever met. That's a pretty good quote. Sex work saved my life. Yeah. My, my favorite humans are sex workers, though. It's, I'm not even kidding. Well, I can only imagine. My, my situation is yeah. a bit more complex because I've also, in parallel to becoming a sex worker, I've also started a new career as a massage therapist and opened up a business with my partner. So yeah. uh, I've got a couple of different projects on the go, which maybe explains why I'm less organized with my books. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get there. But, you know, yeah, it, there's too many balls in the, up in the air. So, yeah, this actually, this is this is just, a, for me, in, in some sense, this is just another expression of, a, of, of going into entrepreneurship you know this is just a different form of entrepreneurship absolutely Um, you know whether it's now be having an independent massage therapy practice which is unrelated to the sex work i do the sex work practice that i have Mm -hmm. or the business that i started these are all different forms of entrepreneurship right and that's um and i'm you know all of them are, are places where i'm experiencing passions or learning new things um so that's that's what's really invigorating about it, and way more stimulating professionally than you know working for somebody else doing things other people's ways. <laughs> oh yeah, inside a very strictly scripted sure. world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
which you can do too, which is kind of amazing that a lot of people can't jump out. They're in a very closed world and that's the way they need mm-hmm. things. But you two have both been able to sort of totally break out. Not that it wasn't work. I think it was, uh, you know, for me anyway, it, it took some, both some mental and some, some actual work to try to get out of the environment that I was in and transition into a different environment, right? You, you don't do that overnight. It takes a little bit of time. Yeah, you went down to part-time. You yeah, worked yeah, a yeah. little bit less for a while. Yeah, didn't you didn't like, walk you know, the Camino, but you, <laughs> you kind of like... No, no, I had, yeah, I did yeah. other things, so yeah. Okay, so we're going to introduce a fourth person into the podcast. Um, she will remain anonymous, but this is Julian's partner, life partner, live-in life partner. And we thought we'd start by asking uh, both Julian and Alexis um, what it's like to have a long-term romantic partner when you are a sex worker and how they feel about um, your profession. So, um, Alexis, I suppose, uh, how does that work? I mean, I know that when we live in non-monogamous um, communities, it seems fairly normal, but for someone who doesn't have a familiarity with polyamory and non-monogamy, um, how does your partner feel about you being a sex worker? Well, while I've been doing sex work, I've had two long-term concurrent uh, partners who both completely knew about my work, both of whom I knew from before I started working and who were aware of my plans to do so. So we had were able to have a lot of talks about that. But yeah, my partners have been really supportive uh, about my work and it's been a good experience. I think there's like a lot of stereotypes, a lot of like mental mythology around like, oh my God, sex workers can't have partners. People can't date sex workers. How could... Especially, how could a man date someone who's an escort? But there's a lot of stigma around that. And we see that in the queer community, too, especially for people who do full-service work and people who interact mainly with male clients. But, yeah, I think it's definitely something... I mean, communication is key. It's kind of trite, but it's true. You just have to talk through absolutely everything and be really honest and find that level of emotional safety with each other. And you need a partner who you can decompress with, who's going to be comfortable to hear about your day and to be able to offer solutions and offer support as well, I imagine. I think also it can just be you know when to get that support elsewhere. Like I wouldn't yeah. necessarily go to my partner with like, I've had a bad day or I've had a shitty client. Not that like I would keep that mm-hmm. hidden, but just if I need to decompress about sex work, I have sex workers who can I can do that with and they get it. Yeah. And that's really important. Like, yeah. You have a strong community. Talking about work and decompressing about work is something I do with other people who have that kind of work experience. Mm-hmm. Right. And and your partner is there to be your partner and to have yeah. fun with and to, to yeah. cohabit with like, and just kind of live day to day. And yeah, yeah, it's to have that normal life with. And my job's my job. And it's a very important part of my life. But it's, it's still, it's it's a job. It's work. And it's something that fits into my life like most other people's jobs do i think yeah exactly okay julian yeah i i I guess my partner who's here with us um has been there for all the entire transition from the beginning to the end right so it's sort of like it's happened we've been we've been going through this together if you will Mm -hmm. right but in some ways it's also not actually practically speaking that different right because we do have a very sex active sex life and we're both polyamorous and you know the idea of me potentially going out on a date on any particular day 
um, with somebody else, somebody new is not that different from any other day, right? Like, I can, if I'm going on an actual romantic date just for my own personal mm-hmm. pleasure, right, or whether I'm going out on a, on an, on a call, it mm-hmm. doesn't actually look different in our lives what that feels like, right? Yeah, I'm just going to um, pause for one second because people may not know what polyamory is. Can yeah, you fair explain very quickly what that is? Right, so polyamory is one form of what is, I guess, most broadly called non-monogamy, right? So all forms of, of, of relationship models that are not monogamous in a, in a strict way. And polyamory is one that I think most, most simply define, boils down to you being able, any one partner being able to love as many other partners as they need or feel the need to love, right? Um, in a communicated uh, and open way with everybody else that's involved, right? So everybody mm-hmm. knows who's, who's dating who and everybody's negotiated any boundaries that need to be negotiated and everybody's on board with the fact that everybody is allowed to love whoever they're loving. It's not a secret thing. Sorry? It's not a secret thing. It's Everything's secret in thing. the open. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we, we, we live a life where on a tu- on any given Tuesday, or maybe not a Tuesday, but on any given Friday, right, I might be going out on a date without my partner because I'm meeting somebody new, or my partner might be going out on a date meeting somebody new. And that entire sort of mechanism on a day-to-day basis of having that happen, whether that's an actual romantic date or a call, um, it's already there in place. So it's actually not been particularly strenuous, at least from my perspective. But she's here, so... Yes, yes. So, uh, step in, partner of Julian. Hi. Tell us what you think, how you feel. Well, um, as a lived experience, I don't find it particularly difficult, right? I know that he's a sexual person. We have this open relationship. I'm not threatened or scared or worried by him with his clients. And the thing that I find most appealing is watching his growth going into a career that's fulfilling to him. So it really doesn't matter to me whether it's sex work or whether it's carpentry, right, or photography. Uh, The ultimate importance for me is how grounded he feels and how it impacts my life with him. So Mm -hmm. obviously, I mean, I'm I'm a relationship counselor and therapist, so I'm really comfortable negotiating relationships and dealing with emotion on some level. And for me, it's more about his emotionality. If he feels happy and healthy in what he's doing and it doesn't negatively impact our relationship, then I'm incredibly supportive. I have to say that there's, you know, other factors in that I have a, I have a child, right? So mm-hmm. obviously there is conflict sometimes underneath there because you're negotiating what I would like to think as being really open-minded, accepting sex-positive life, but also in the lived reality of what a 12-year-old's life is like. And so there's sort of a negotiation in there that sometimes can end up feeling like rejection to him or protection on a certain level and is complicated. But the advantage of being with somebody like him is that we really do talk through things, right? Mm -hmm. We really do have to deal with it. So regardless of whether there's an emotionality there, um, there's still connection and I don't feel like unattended to or not listened to um, or, or separated from this person because of his career choice. Wow. That's really cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Plus, there's this added benefit that it seems to turn him on a lot. <laughs> well, that's important. It, it, I mean, it energizes you to do something you love. Right? Like I said, this is a yeah, hobby. It does. Right? It's a, it's a, you do what you love. You do what you're passionate about. It just gives you more energy. So Exactly. Exactly. And I think about people who... Let's say they're passionate about having sex with multiple partners, but they have to do it on the sly and mm-hmm. how damaging that can be for them and their partner. You know, I yeah, mean, sure. you know, there's something to be said for um, acknowledging what you need and, and working together on that. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very out about what I do, but I definitely have to recognize that there's a lot of 
privilege in that. Like, I don't have children. I don't intend to have children. I don't intend to work with children or seek public office. There are a lot of Oh, angles you never know. There. <laughs> <laughs> Mayor of Montreal. Of <laughs> it wouldn't be yeah. any worse than the past few. <laughs> it, would be, it would be a lot better. Corruption in Montreal politics. We'll, um, we'll run on a platform. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll be on the ticket together. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's. I'm very open about what I do. Sometimes I think I'm a bit brazen about it. But I'm not afraid of people finding out most people close to me know uh i'm pretty open about it with acquaintances i have been a bit more guarded in spheres that intersect with my old career but definitely there are people who know i suspect eventually the people i used to work for may know and it's not really something i want to hide going forward Mm -hmm. in work either like the work i've done as a sex worker building my own business, running my own accounts, doing my own management and admin, like that's built on my office work experience and expanded it and just taught me so much that I think is applicable to regular work life that I don't ever want to be afraid to be out about this in any context. And like not being close to children is a huge factor that allows me to do that, but... It's also really important to me to, you know, continue to speak out about but what I But even do. being close to children, there, I mean, I have two children and mm-hmm. there are lots of things that you can sort of just keep to yourself. Adults are entitled to having a private life, yeah. you know, and parents have private lives and you don't have to talk about everything or, or share everything. But I think there can be a lot of issues like in terms of custody, in terms of how fitness as a parent is viewed not so much like in your interaction with your children, mm-hmm. but how other people can view a parent who's also a sex worker. Oh yeah. yeah. Like uh, that I think is where there's like, there's a genuine danger there. Yeah. It's not just being a negative influence. It's, it's how sure. that will. Look, the, 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 the reality is that there is there, like picking up on something you said, there is in fact a large portion of society that has, that have a stigma about this. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we, like we were saying before, we kind of exist in a bit of an echo chamber in our own little bubbles where maybe that's attenuated or maybe not. We don't even feel that particularly much because we're surrounded by sex positive people who accept us mm-hmm. for who we are and what we do. But I'm very much conscious of the fact that, you know, um, it would be highly unacceptable in my past professional life for me to do, like this is highly transgressive for me to do what I'm doing. Yeah. Vis-a-vis but the people I used to work with. But that's part of the reason to why you enjoy it so much. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's part of the reason <laughs> why I'm enjoying it so much, but it's certainly, but it's certainly, I'm, I'm aware of that. the therapist now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm, I'm very much aware of it. And I, and, and when I made the choice to do this, it was with the consciousness that it, it might come to the, it might become public and it might become yeah. an issue. And that if it does, I'm prepared to stand up and say, I believe that this mm-hmm. shouldn't be stigmatized and that I have the right to do this and there is in fact nothing wrong etc etc and you know I have some legal skills that allow me to fight for this <laughs> <laughs> issue if I if need be right like mm-hmm. um, you know I, I don't know exactly what that would look like but my point is that I'm, I'm you know I'm not looking for that fight and I'm trying to keep things relatively sort of anonymous and, and, and under wraps but should it come to that I am not um, I don't feel bad about what I do and I'm comfortable talking to my friends and family and everybody else and want to be out and sort of promote there's a bit of activism going there to be yeah, to absolutely. tear down the stigma if you will you know exactly I, yeah exactly <clears throat> I would say though as a partner you know the the hurdles the hurdles that I come up against um, or perspective hurdles are the first question is my other partners asking me about my sexual health 
right? Yeah. So there's this assumption that sex workers' sexual health is somehow more dangerous than non-sex workers' sexual health. And the reality is, is I have an immense amount of trust in him to protect his sexual health. And as has been pointed out, we already live non-monogamous, fairly active sexual lives in which people may not be actually looking after their sexual health to the extent that sex yeah. workers are. So it, this is another myth to break down. Yeah. That actually informed sex workers' sexual health might be actually safer on some level than the random bar pickup. So... You know, I think that, you know, what I encounter as a difficulty or potential is if I'm looking for a new potential partner, I have to on some level disclose. Yeah. Right. There's this sort of uh, this kind of uh, domino effect of relationship that happens in polyamory. Yeah. And it is not only having a bisexual partner already puts a hurdle in to have a bisexual sex worker partner will probably add more hurdles. Yeah. But the way that I look at it is if someone can't accept me in that context, they're probably not a particularly good partner for me anyways. So I look at it yeah. as being a filter versus a block. Well, they need you're to here. accept not just you, but your life. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you, yeah. you can't be taken in isolation as just a person. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in a weird way, it's like a litmus test, right? If mm -hmm. you can handle this, if you can handle the complication that is the world that I live in, then the likelihood of you being a good partner for me is pretty high. If you can't handle it at all, if you can't deal with polyamory, you can't deal with a sexual life, you can't deal with the complications of bisexuality or pansexuality or transsexuality, then the likelihood of me having an intimate, comp, you know, connected relationship with you is fairly small anyways. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, there's this assumption that sex work is somehow riskier than um, non-monogamy or in many cases, someone who's secretively non-monogamous. And that's incredibly risky. Mm -hmm. I mean, someone who's actually not talking to their partner mm -hmm. or their partners about what they're doing and who they're involved with is, is, is really, really risky. Mm -hmm. I mean, by laying everything on the table, you're really saying, like, this is, mm -hmm. this is where I'm at. Where are you at? Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of communication that goes into that. And to be honest, I think that because like maybe this is a place where this thing might end up working in a positive, having a positive outcome, is that you know even the clients who hire us have a tendency to assume that there's something more risky about us than if they were just being to be to be promiscuous with people, the people they pick up in bars or whatever, right? Which is absurd. Which is which is not actually the case. <laughs> right? But it, what it, that leads to is, in my experience anyway, that they are fairly adamant about protecting themselves, and the ones who aren't are very ad, like they're very upfront that what they're looking for is unprotected sets, right? And that's yeah. a, that's a thing onto itself that I've noticed people can sort of market i mean it's not something that i offer right yeah but it's out there yeah um, but the rest of the the clients are themselves very adamant about being safe and and making sure that everything is in line so you know between between our efforts and their efforts i, I think i actually end up having far safer sex <laughs> with my clients than i have in the past just you know going out to sex clubs or things right like, yeah yeah <laughs> definitely i would think on the spectrum like your average person has a pretty poor awareness of sexual health of mm -hmm. how to use barriers of what is like of what casual STI risks in a sexual relationship can look like. Mm -hmm. I think people who are ethically non-monogamous who are polyamorous tend to have a much better view of that. But even then, like I was, I'd been, I'm going to say non-monogamous for about five years before I started doing sex work, four or five years. And even then just the things I've become aware of and the small things to be careful of in doing sex work and just keeping track of fluids and using lots of barriers and upping my testing schedule even more than it's already been. My knowledge is about sexual health has expanded a lot in about a year and a half of doing sex work compared to even someone who's 
very well informed beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there's a, did you want to say, oh, no, no, yeah. I was actually just agreeing yeah. uh, in that. I think that regular testing, that regular, like, I think there's, there's a tendency for people to be in kind of fearful denial of their yeah. sexual health. They don't want to know. Right? They don't want to get the HIV or the, the hep C. Or they think or, it won't happen to yeah. them. It'll never mm-hmm, happen to me. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, and yeah. many, many of these, um, I, I, many sexual health diseases are not particularly dangerous. It's, it's the stigma and the relationship with them that are. Yeah. And so there's a whole complicated thing around what it really means. I mean, why is it that a cold sore on your lip is socially acceptable, but God forbid it's down on your crotch. All of a sudden you're like a pariah because you, what, you're spreading this horrible, ineffectual disease all over the place? Cause yeah. Dirty. Yeah, because you're dirty. Yeah, exactly. dirty. So I think what happens um, is that there is an increased awareness with people who work within the sexual domain. And they have a much more balanced view of the meaning of sexual health. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, totally. I mean, if I can go into another paradox, being that both of you are in non-monogamous relationships, how do you feel about um, having clients who are secretive about their non-monogamy Versus the two of you who are mo- very open about your non-monogamy. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I, I don't, I don't try to. I try not to judge other people's circumstances, especially yeah. that in, in in my particular context, since all of my clients are men, there is obviously a non insignificant percentage of that who are very obviously closeted, right, mm-hmm. to a greater or lesser extent, and. You know, I, I I respect people's choices in the, in that way, right? Like, there it's a context and a circumstance that I don't understand, and it, there's lots of complex reasons why people choose to stay in the closet or not or come out of it, etc. Right? And if that's if that's the way that they choose to escape, then I'm happy to provide them with a safe means to do so. Yeah. Right? Um, but like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go out and judge and tell them how to do how to live their lives in that way. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think. It's been a learning experience for me prior to doing sex work. I exactly once I was the other person in someone's relationship and I didn't know mm-hmm. and I eventually found out and I it was very emotionally devastating for me to find out about that in a way that uh really kind of surprised me. And so that was something I thought about a lot coming into sex work. And even though it's still I wouldn't see someone in a closed relationship in, the, in my personal life, it's something I've come to terms with in sex work because, of course, I have single clients, I have clients with partners, I have clients who are married, and I have to, you know, have faith in them in making the judgment to come to me mm-hmm. and that that's their decision and that... Yeah, their relationship is their relationship to manage. And it's, absolutely, it's yeah. their life, independent of what they choose to do with you. And yeah. I have my responsibilities there to be discreet, to value their privacy to take my own sexual health and you know the techniques with which I sterilize my equipment and that sort of thing very very seriously but yeah it's something that I've come to terms with and that it can be okay for me yeah it's it is their choice yeah it's their choice and they've come and that's that's not a that's not my moral burden mm-hmm. it's interestingly enough I, I don't I don't think I have to deal with this anymore now than in the context of just going out to party and finding men to sleep with, right? Like at any point in time, if if I'm looking for essentially mostly a sexual encounter with a guy for my own personal pleasure, 
there's and it's not an insignificant possibility that this person is in fact closeted married and just down there for the, that one time a month or whatever right mm-hmm. like so I, in, in some sense it's not any different than it's always been and like I said my my approach has always been whether in my personal life or my professional life that you know like I said it's not my place to judge who is closeted and why they may be so right mm-hmm. like it, it's their it's their story it's their time and their, their choice to come out or not come out when they're yeah. ready you know, everyone has had their trajectory I mean you've been closeted sure. before too right oh, I yeah, mean absolutely. you know maybe they're just at another point in their lives yeah. and yeah it's not your job to show them the light necessarily just it's just to to love them really and yeah. and and support them and get you know be with them yeah. sure. and, and then I'd rather they come to me and you know professionally I'd rather come they come to me and get you know a good service that's you know clean and safe and, and all that stuff right and like you were saying taking taking safety res- responsibly into account because there's maybe other people involved right mm-hmm. um, then do it otherwise right yeah yeah, and I think uh, like Julian said a little while ago like it's really important me- for me to like not be judging my clients' decisions and what they're doing in their relationships sometimes often, often actually I'm asked about being in a non-monogamous relationship because I'm pretty open about that and I don't I don't talk about my partners I respect their privacy but I I'll sometimes tell talk to clients about how that functions mm-hmm. and that can be something that they find interesting I like I don't try to advise people about that I just lay out that this is what my life looks like and this mm-hmm. is how some people live and like sometimes something I'm very knowledgeable about within Montreal is sexual health and the kind of resources you can get access to and if clients ask, we'll often counsel them on like how to get tested, where to get tested, what they can ask for, and that sort of thing. Because that's mm-hmm. in our industry something that's really important on both sides. That clients mm-hmm. are also getting tested regularly and not afraid of that. Um, sometimes the clients who are most worried or anxious or paranoid about STIs are the ones who are like, "I've never been tested in my whole life, but I'm definitely clean because <laughs> so I am." Because I'm invincible. Right? And people don't think that, like, well, most STIs are asymptomatic. And many of them aren't a serious issue unless they go a long time without being treated. Mm-hmm. And just managing your self-sexual health and being aware of it and taking a non-judgmental approach is really important. Yeah. So we're going to ask a kind of novelty question. <laughs> what are the most common or the most interesting, unusual special requests that you get? <laughs> Just tell me about the special requests, whichever one you feel like talking about. Oh, can I? Can I? Without go first? divulging, I'm excited. Julian is so I'm excited. So excited. His face because is glowing. He is, he's both blushing. Because both, bo- it's it's both. I think going to be a fairly extreme kind of a special request that that most people are not used to, and one that I'm actually genuinely excited to go through with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually somebody who doesn't want to have sex with me at all, mm-hmm. but who wants to have an S and M session in which I am the masochist and they are the sadist Mm -hmm. and in particular they are very interested in leaving bruises so I'm going to spend a whole evening actually a whole night with this person getting bruised in all different parts of my body oh my yeah (laughs) (laughs) he's gonna leave a little care after that oh yeah there's gonna be a lot of baths the day after a lot of baths yeah a lot of poking fun it's what You're just like oh, yeah. you said. You were maybe, okay with this. <laughs> maybe maybe I should disclose the BDSM is part of my personal life, also, and so my partner may be familiar with some of this stuff. <clears throat> <laughs> oh my goodness! Nothing. I say nothing. So, yeah, that's and you're excited about this. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, because you're used Absolutely. to dishing it out, and now you're sure. going to receive you know, it. The, the general is don't dish out things you can't take, or you, at least if they haven't taken once, right? So Absolutely. Um, it's, good, it's good practice to, to, to be on the receiving end at least, at least sometimes. So <laughs> I think this will qualify. <laughs> what about you, Alexis? Well, I, I offered... I do different kinds of sex work. I do massage. I do girlfriend experience, which is most of my work. And, and can you explain what domination. girlfriend experience is for someone who may not know? Uh, girlfriend experience is often referred to as full service sex work. I'm probably going to let people Google a lot of these terms. I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say on air. I was told that it involved kissing. That the girl. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> No, but I was told that like it means maybe different things to me different I'm people. I think annoyed. it means maybe. different things to different people, and I think people outside of the industry often have a very different picture in their head of what it means. It generally implies certain services and warmth and affection, and I mean it's also it's also an umbrella term, but it's mm. just I mean it's what I would offer in a session with a client because I want that closeness, I want a connection, I want to you know talk to somebody and. Get to know them a bit. Can right. I ask a question? Oh, okay. does it involve emotional labor? <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, so can so can other parts of, but, you know, of there, there, sex there work. I think the domination work I do. The third thing I do is domination, and that also involves a lot of emotional labor, especially outside of a session. Yeah, I bet. Um, in terms of most common requests, definitely because I I included my GFE encounter. I often get requests about pegging or prostate massage. Which is something I really enjoy, and I find a lot of men are kind of tentative to approach it, or have certain anxieties about it, or what it means for them, or maybe they've never found a partner in the personal life to explore it with. What is pegging? Uh, pegging is anal sex with a strap on okay. on someone who has an anus. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> usually, okay. usually the term refers to a woman pegging a man, but I, there can be yeah. other gender configurations going on there. Sure, sure. Um, so that's definitely the most common one I get. And I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. I think it often keys into like my kind of ideal experiences with a client was that they get to explore something that they've been thinking about, something that they've been wanting and I can give it to them and mm -hmm. I can explore that with them and I can guide them through that with like all my history and knowledge of that and in a warm, safe, inviting space that's where really there's no cool. judgment. Yeah, and that's like that's that's really what I vibe off of. That's those are the sessions I come out of grinning. And I mean, it can be anything. It can be you know clothespins on nipples. It can be really small things. I think especially in BDSM because I've got a St Andrew's cross up in my in call. That kind of thing. People often have anxieties that their interests are too tame. That mm -hmm. like yeah. surely you do such crazy stuff that like what witchcraft balls. And I'm like, <laughs> and I think no, like wherever you're at and whatever you want to explore, that's that's what matters. I don't I don't like this kink hierarchy of like you have to be able to you know be suspended and stuck with thirty needles or three hundred needles and. Yeah, I think people's imaginations go wild they of do. how extreme it and can get. In you know? my personal yeah. life, I've definitely <laughs> gone to some pretty far extremes, and I'm glad that I have that experience. But that's not better or more valid than any other encounter. So, I, yeah, I don't think of any well, part of my work as like, what's the most extreme thing I've done? But 
for the most common thing i've given you my answer <laughs> yeah for me for me like you know in my personal life in my bdsm experience what i find most interesting is always pushing boundaries and it doesn't really matter like and, I, and i've pushed certain boundaries with certain people into some pretty deep dark places right but mm. just because i've gone very deep in some places doesn't mean i can't enjoy pushing somebody's boundary which is a little much lower right if somebody, oh yeah if somebody's boundaries is on a three out of ten or whatever activity that it happens to be right trying to gently nudge them and get them to explore and, and show them how far of them could be could be a pleasure is exciting right? well a journey of discovery so, is always exciting exactly, rather than right? working yeah. with someone who's super jaded and who's seen it all is like <laughs> yeah whatever okay do your worst sure exactly someone so who's like super titillated by like the most sort of you know early explorations Sure. I think that's yeah. almost more exciting. Exactly. Definitely. And, and like, like I said, you have to sort of like de-hierarchize it in a way. It's kind of hard not to because you some things are more intense feeling than other things, right? And so there's like an easy way to try to put a hierarchy on them, but that's not how it is, right? It's all, mm. at least not for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think those, those novel explorations are, are so much fun. And just yeah. when someone's really engaged, really present, really into the experience, like some people are only half there. Not, not a lot of people, but it happens. And those are just the times that are less enjoyable. But when someone's fully engaged, they really want to be there. They really want to try something, even if it doesn't work, even if it's not quite what they wanted, but they, they want to keep trying and they want to figure out what works. Mm. That's so much fun. And it's so great to facilitate that journey for someone. It really, mm -hmm. it's very fulfilling. Yeah. Do you guys have long-term or recurring clients who you can go deeper with and have sort of more in-depth experiences with? I have a few clients who see me semi-regularly, um, dating back over a year for a few of them. I don't know, like, I don't have a, ha I haven't had a lot of BDSM clients who've been very long-term and very intensive. A lot of the work I do is very sensual. And so it's more just about exploring the connection and trying different new things and just bringing something new to each experience than it is like going deeper into mm. a particular interest. Right. Okay. Yeah, I have I have one client who's fairly regular. Um, I've been to I've been doing this a lot less long than than Alexis. I've been doing this for about a half a year now. We're coming up. Um, so, so far, I've had one um, a very regular client, a couple of recurring clients, but most of the guys who have been coming back actually have not been at all interested in BDSM. Mm. Um, so it's got, it had nothing to do with that or exploring a particular interest. They, their, you know, their interest would be what you would call them fairly standard vanilla ones. But I think what they come back for is actually that connection that we were talking about before. Um, you know, the ability to have a l something real and intimate uh, in that moment mm. um, and, and having, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend experience kind of a thing. Um, so I think that's that's more where I see sort of like so there's not there's not really an interest to to push if there's an interest it's it's getting to actually know somebody better and better and better mm -hmm. and therefore being able to create a better connection and more you know a more satisfying sexual uh, encounter with that. What I'm really fascinated by is parallel worlds mm -hmm. and how there are lives and worlds or parts of our lives that we're not allowed to talk about or that some people talk about and others don't. 
Um, and when we, you guys were talking about having lunchtime clients, I started thinking about, wow, you know, if I worked in an office and people would go out for lunch and I wouldn't know where they went, maybe some of them were seeing prostitutes, you know, or like having an adventure and they come back happy. And I don't know if they just had a good lunch date or they went for a run or, or what, they, or they had some kind of experience, you know, I don't know. But like, I'm really fascinated by that overlapping of simultaneous worlds that and this whole world that where we don't talk about the things that we do for fun or the things that we do in private and how that's part of the thrill you know i mean and you guys are kind of part of that world of like the secret world some in some cases your lives are super open and you talk about the openness of in your personal lives but then there's this whole other world that you're involved with of people who have secrets yeah i think the, the container of a session is really important and really almost sacred that we're take that an hour together is an hour out of your regular life yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it's an hour just to explore and open up and be completely yourself and then you go back to the regular world yeah. and it's you know it has a start it has an end it has conditions and then when you close that container at the end, it's over and you go back to regular life. And it's kind of magical. It's a little magical. It's super magical, <laughs> actually. So interesting. I, 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 said, I don't think you do that. Do you do, do you sub for people? No, I don't. Okay. Well, I, I, I do. That's, and that's <laughs> you actually... you define what that is for people who don't okay, know? Okay. So, so in, the, in, in the, you know, sort of in the BDSM sort of parlance, like parlance <laughs> in the parlance of our times... <laughs> <laughs> to make a big bad big Lebowski reference anyway um, yeah so so in, in the BDSM world you usually have two roles you have people who you know as you said you dish it out and people who will take it in various different activities yeah. right so usually the person dishing it out is called a dominant or a dom mm -hmm. and the person who's taking it is being submissive to the dominant and, and is called submissive or sub right mm -hmm. um, so I I actually so in the in the in the SM and the BDSM services that I offer I don't only dom people I don't only you know spank them and tie them up and whatnot but I also offer myself as the submissive partner in the, in a relationship which is actually quite interesting like like the person I was talking about who wants mm -hmm. to bruise me that's clearly I'm the masochist I'm being I'm submitting to this person's desire yeah. for pain for for pain right yeah um so that's actually interesting to me because what I'm what I'm noticing is I'm actually getting slowly a, a, a set of clients who are coming for that. And they might actually want to push boundaries which are not just physical, but are actually a bit emotional, right? They, I have, I've had people approach me and say, you know, I, I want you, I want you to come to a session and be real with me and show me where you want to take your stuff. Like, be personal, be real, show me some intimate uh, feelings of what you want to submit to, what you want mm. to explore, and what limits you want to push. Wow. Um, right. So that that then that session, that sort of the tables are turned. It's a session in which the sort of intimacy thing is important and the quality of the connection is important, but in the opposite direction, right? Um, and those those sessions I find really fun because then I'm really getting paid for personal exploration. It's fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Um, I guess let's let's change topics a little bit. I mean, earlier to before this podcast kicked in, um, we were talking about how Montreal has just opened up a bunch of dispensaries, and <laughs> I'm totally changing the topic because I've run out of questions. Um, but you guys can continue. But anyway, Montreal has opened up dispensaries. Marijuana is about to become illegal in Canada. Or legal, sorry. Excuse me. It's about to become legal in Canada. Um, 
Not that this has any relation whatsoever to sex work, but I was wondering how, <laughs> well, how yeah, you no, guys I think it does. about that. <laughs> you think so? How so? Sure. I mean, I mean, clearly people, at least at least anecdotally, people associate drugs with sex work, right? Like, I mean, also, I think you might want to draw a parallel between the changing attitude towards morality and mm. law, right? Yes. Um, whether abolition has an impact and what abolition's impact is, mm-hmm. right? So... Um, when you're in a state of drugs saying this is illegal, what happens is there's no the usage doesn't go down, but the safety of the usage does. Mm-hmm. And so at a certain point, which is like what happened with prohibition back with alcohol, you get to a certain point where the pushback is like, wait a minute, actually, you know, making this illegal doesn't make it inaccessible. Yeah. Interestingly enough, an obvious parallel between sex work and that can be drawn. Yeah. Right? So Absolutely. I think that there is something interesting there saying, wait a minute, we're starting to not look at morality as being something we enforce through making that activity illegal. Instead, what we want to do is, you know, um, uh, best regulate. health, uh, you know, yeah. uh, best practices, best health practices. And yeah. the way to do that is to accept that people do this mm-hmm. and let's keep people healthy within it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we see in models around the world where sex work is decriminalized basically everyone is happier and healthier and there's less violence and abuse going on the same can be said of countries where drugs are decriminalized especially possession then people with addictions are safe to seek treatment this is this is the thing especially in the u.s where doing sex work is decriminalized is criminalized pardon versus canada where providing sexual services is technically not illegal although purchases purchasing them is technically illegal and many of the things around sex work the administrative work the associating with other sex works advertising do are illegal as well um we see in the states that people in and canada too people in bad situations relating to sex work where they can't go to authorities or community services because to have anyone find out that they do sex work would make their situation worse. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very similar. Absolutely. Where well, you have to injustices happen, but you can't actually in. get any help. Yeah. yeah. When you have to hide that you're engaged in an illegal activity, so that perpetuates other harm going on, that if this like morally legislated thing weren't the issue... Mm-hmm you could have access to resources that you need. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But wouldn't that change the nature of the service? I mean, once it's legal, it becomes maybe in some ways less titillating for people, less transgressive. Look, I, I, I don't think I, I don't think there has no. been a lack of demand for sexual services in places like Amsterdam, you know, no, like, or or true. whatever the New parts Zealand. of Nevada yeah, that, yeah, have, yeah, that yeah. where it's legal. New right? Zealand, That's, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, New yeah, Zeal- I, think- I believe New Zealand has full decriminalization, and in Australia, it varies by province between legalization and decriminalization. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's coming in Canada? Do you think it's it's something uh, that's that will I don't know. I mean, we had sort of technical decriminalization up until. Well, bet- between the laws being struck down by uh, the Bedford decision and C-36, which ultimately is yeah. more restrictive than the laws that already exist, I think the push in many countries, including in Canada, by, by activists with close ties to the sex work community or with overlaps, the main pushes for decriminalization, where you're not introducing 
extensive, poorly thought out, police-driven uh, regulation and intervention, which is still creating two classes where there is legal sex work and illegal sex work. Instead, uh, the goal of many activists is broad decriminalization, mm. which lets people organize, which yeah. lets us enforce higher standards and that sort of thing. So it used to be that actually people, it used to be that for a very, very long time, actually buying or, or selling sexual services Canada was not actually illegal. The only thing that was mm. illegal was providing services to people who do that. So you, you couldn't essentially be a pimp or a bodyguard or an accountant or whatever. Any one of those things could have potentially been uh, labeled, you know, uh, a living off of the, the avails of prostitution, right? And you couldn't have, you know, a house in which people had, you know, um, provided uh, outcall spaces, for example, because it would be a brothel. So all the public, and you can't, you couldn't solicit on street corner. But you could, for example, very legally, solicit in private, on the internet, in, ma in magazines. If I walked into a private room and I said, I would like to sell my sexual services, this was perfectly okay. There was, mm -hmm. nothing, there was no actual law about that. But so, th th and then there was, a, there, was a, there was a court challenge to some of the rules that made all the auxiliary services um, illegal. Uh, and that challenge actually went through. The, the court, the Supreme Court of Canada said, yes, you're right. If we're going to allow you to legally do this work, we also have to give you access to the things that make that work safe, mm -hmm. like having bodyguards and, you know, pimps who are not abusive and things like that, right? Like those are those are actual legitimate valuable services that you might want to have, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then struck, so struck down the laws. Um, and then the Harper government put in a, a very different, and I, I think they were, they were officially modeled themselves with Sweden or something, model where they've now actually... So they've decriminalized um, sex work itself, like the sex workers are not committing a crime and selling their services. And people who provide services to them in a non-abusive fashion are also not on the hook, although nobody quite knows where that line is right. yet. Um, but technically, the clients now who do buy this stuff are committing a crime. Right. Uh, that's yeah, a, yeah, but yeah. it's a new thing. That, then that wasn't the case until about three years ago or four years ago when, that, when, when the, the last law came into effect. So it's a bit of a paradox because so, who are you selling to? <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I, think, I, think, you know. I think that there are potentially challenges. Like you know, from, a, from my own personal opinion, I think there's some challenges that can be made to that law, right, on various grounds. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's lots of people who don't like all the, a lot of people in the sex work industry don't like the way that the law has been drafted, right? For one I, thing, yeah. Well, I think an important, like, part of or an important consequence of this law is that it makes sex work less safe for sex workers because our clients are scared mm -hmm. our clients don't want to provide screening info mm. our clients are cagey like the many of the better clients are reluctant to engage in the industry especially since c36 and it just it makes and it makes it harder for us to work together it makes us harder for us to pool resources. There are a lot of issues where this yeah. law that is technically to protect sex workers makes our lives more difficult and dangerous. Yeah. For example, blacklisting Johns. Well, which is which is actually interesting yeah. because the previous law was struck down on the grounds that it was actually creating an environment which was unsafe for sex workers. That was the ground. That was the challenge. Was you can't allow us to do our jobs legally, but take away all the services that make our lives safe, right? Like access mm -hmm. to all this stuff, right? So, and that that was the grounds on which the the, the law, the previous law, was struck out. So, you know, did, I think. The general sentiment. I'm yet to talk to anybody who's connected to the sex work industry who didn't think that the current law didn't do anything to make things better. If anything, it made it worse based mm. on that safety standard. Right. Right. I mean, in a very, in a very sort of like um, blank, you know, on the surface sort of way. What does it? What does a law that says that your clients are criminal? If if, if being a client of mine is, is 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 making somebody into a criminal, that filters for people who are willing to be criminals. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's you know just on the very basic level, right? How does that make me safer? It doesn't. 
right? And I think ultimately, when it goes, to, when it's challenged again, when it goes to court again, you see Bill C thirty six won't stand for the same reason the existing, the previous laws didn't stand. But that's, I'm sure you know, as a lawyer, here's, here's hoping <laughs> a, a lengthy and difficult and expensive yeah, yeah, sure. process. And until those challenges work their way through the courts, which may be many years. Yeah. We're stuck with the Harper yeah, legacy. I haven't heard that on anybody's platform since Harper. Trudeau yeah, did, sort of did initially, um, just after the election, talk about um, wanting to reform the laws around sex work. And I, I pretty... I pretty closely tried to follow news on it for a year, and there was only one article out of Ottawa that basically said they were still working on it, they were still in talks. Activists in Ottawa might be closer to this than I am, but there hasn't been a lot of news. There were Mm. some initial vague promises, but we don't really know where it's going. Yeah, because Trudeau came in and actively repealed all kinds of things. And we we have had... crackdowns since Trudeau came to power. There was uh, Operation Northern Light. I might be wrong on that, but uh, yeah, people have been... I think it was during Grand Prix or something. There was a... Wasn't there... Yeah, there was a huge... There was a huge and very stigmatizing uh, ad campaign in Montreal during Grand Prix. Oh, I saw some of those. Oh my goodness. Buying sex is not a sport. Yeah, yeah. They're Mm -hmm. still up. I just saw them recently. Yeah, I've seen them on the buses They're on buses, yeah. Yeah, and A, this scares everyone in the industry. This harms our incomes. This harms our livelihoods well, it, it, sorry but at some level it's just freaking insulting frankly and it's, right? insulting. it's like, and like it's in insulting. The, the way it's drafted it's as if the only it, it's drafted on the premise that the only reason why you would do this is if you were victimized by circumstances right mm-hmm. either we're talking about financial but whatever they are right that you would only ever do this out of some kind of necessity right i mean and that's like frankly, or ill will or ill will right yeah. and then like oh, there's got to be essentially there's got to be something wrong with you if you're doing this and you're and but we're well but you know we'll excuse it we'll call you a victim so we won't charge you with anything but you know if you're supporting this sort of thing, you must be supporting something bad, right? And, you know, like when I was talking about activism, the mm-hmm. p- transitioning out of becoming a lawyer from, from going to from being a lawyer to go to being a sex worker, I, I that's an act of saying, no, that is not what's happening. I am not a victim here. This is a yeah. choice. And you can't, like, how can you tell me that I'm doing this out of necessity? I'm clearly not doing this out of necessity. Yeah, and you <laughs> can't equate um, paying for sex with, say human trafficking which is i think what they're trying to do in those ads is basically saying that you're in some way a victimizer sure right yeah but i mean that is that's that's okay, a misconception and don't, get, and don't get me wrong it's not that there aren't parts of the sex industry that are not like that there are right and we should address that but uh painting the entire field with yeah. one broad stroke on that uh, in that way is really not helpful so uh, a better anybody cam- yeah a better campaign would be you know choose who you decide to hire just like with anything when you buy garments you want to buy clothes that were not made by people who are you know enslaved or um who are being mistreated it's the same with any consumer decision and it's important to recognize that especially in the current narrative around sex trafficking and the rescue industry is that often it's not really about helping sex workers have better lives. There are sex workers who don't want to be in the industry and that is okay and those experiences are valid. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy what I do. Not everyone does. There are people who are in the industry non-consensually. There are people sure. who are trafficked. Yeah. Yeah, but with broad criminalization, you can't help those people if you can't distinguish them from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If everyone's a victim, 
you can't help anyone. Yeah, yeah. Yes, by alleviating the stigma, you're exactly saying, I have the power to choose someone who is in this profession because they want to be. And you're minimizing actual violence. Yeah. If you think that every time a client buys time with a sex worker, that's rape, then you're overlooking actual rape and violence that happens in the industry, and that's different. You're putting, you're putting noise in the channel, basically. Mm. Because these things happen, but you're minimizing those experiences. Mm -hmm. So why should prostitution be legal? What, what would be the reason for legalizing it? Well, I, 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 well, you, you want you want you want my opinion on why it is that the current laws can be challenged why is constitutionally. It not legal I'm right not going to get into that. Why is, but, <laughs> why is it I'm not save legal that right for the now? Court. So, <laughs> why is it not legal right now? Well, it's not legal. Well, it, it, which boy we, we said which part of it is it? There's yeah. a part of it that's illegal. There's a part of it that, yeah, that yeah, is yeah, legal, yeah. right? Okay. And and I think there's a sort of a. I don't know why it isn't an onus on me to tell you why it's legal. Why is it? Why should it be legal to drive a bus? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, why should it be legal for you to do anything? Like, you sh use your body for any kind of labor. Like, why is it legal for me to go and be a construction worker? I'm allowed to use my body f to earn a living. Whatever I can, I'm willing and, and able to do with my body. And it's not a question for me to prove to you that there's something okay about it. It's the other way around. I think that you should prove to me that mm -hmm. my freedom and autonomy over my own body should be limited by your ideas of like your moral code of, of, of sexual conduct. Yeah. Right? Like that, that, I think that's the more pertinent question, right? Yeah. 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 I think it's taking the moral judgment out of it and recognizing that it's work, it's a job. And not everybody has to love it. Not everyone has to be like, this is the best job I've ever had. Like, clearly, Julian and I are very excited and happy with our decisions to be sex workers. But for some people, it's just a job. For some people, it's not even a job they like very much. But that's still a job they're allowed to have. And that's still a still way... Still a choice, right? And it's still a way, especially in this current economy, to be economically autonomous, to have access to resources and mm -hmm. to just get by in a way that accommodates a lot of people. I know yeah. a lot of sex workers, myself included, with chronic health issues or mental health issues, that it's just hard to accommodate in a regular nine-to-five job with the kind of demands that come with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I have one last question because uh, we're running out of time. Um, for those listening... Um, if you want to experiment, um, hire a sex worker, and you want to do it safely, uh, what would you recommend? What, what's your advice? All right. Well, I, I think probably, um, you know, go, I think looking online is a good idea and making sure that you find a place where you and, and you, you ultimately connect with somebody who you can have a good conversation about you know sexual safety and what it is that you want right and I think you can probably very quickly from your first kind of couple exchanges get a sense of who's on the other end right mm -hmm. um, are they asking the right questions um, are they responding with the right answers kind of thing um, and I, I think you know I'm sort of saying it it goes both ways right if I was if I was a client going out looking um, I'd be trying to connect with somebody who had good answers to my questions about sexual health uh, and the kinds of things that I want or don't want out of, a, out of an encounter, you know? In that sense, it's not unlike online dating. You have a conversation yeah, exactly. with someone, you get to know them, you figure sure. out, you know, whether you have shared interests. Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely online is one of the best ways to find people these days. Uh, something I would look for is a history of being established like ads dating back a certain length of time consistent advertising consistent contact info maybe the presence of social media 
anything that proves that this is an established consistent person because there there are scams out there they're not very common and you don't have to be super paranoid about them but just some basic consumer research and another thing is be really respectful when you do this read the ad read the website if there is one try and take all that information in often people won't want to uh, julia mentioned sexual health and asking those questions often those aren't questions you want to ask in the initial exchange with someone and a sex worker will probably take offense at that or decide not to see you explicit questions are really frowned upon Sexual health questions often come off as dismissive and condescending. It's a conversation you can have in person. It's an important one to have. But, you know, just relax. Yeah, don't lead with that. Don't lead yeah. with that. Yeah. Try Are and, you, you know, clean? Try and put <laughs> all your information no, that's, that's not the kind of thing. With but, a I, you? I think, but, you know, but, you know, I think, I think maybe our contexts are a little bit different because I, I have a tendency I have a tendency to get a lot of those questions up front. I mean, some people talk about them a little later in the conversations, but if somebody comes, like I've had a, several very respectful people sort of email me and say, okay, here's, you know, I would like to see you next week, you know, for this amount of time. Uh, here's what my interests are. Uh, here's how I take care of my sexual health. What do you do? Right. Mm. Um, and, and like that, I, I, that seems like a very respectful, very useful thing, you know, efficient conversation. Let's get the important bits out of the way and then we can talk about the personal stuff. Absolutely. Right? I think um, for sexual health stuff, leading with your own information is super important. And often potential clients don't have this information. So it's important, you know, before you go see a sex worker, stop, go get tested. It's free. We, we have public health care. Yeah. And, you know, be able to be forward with that and just. Follow, read all their instructions, follow their information, note their rates if listed, don't haggle, don't be demanding, try and plan in advance. Yeah. yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, we're out of time. Ooh. We have wound up our podcast. Do you have anything else? Any last minute observations, questions, comments? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not like on my thank you for inviting us here. This has been a lot of fun. I will chime in and agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you two, for being so candid about your lives. Yeah, it's no, really I think it's really important that this kind of information is out there, that that people get more than the soundbite, that sex workers are real people with three-dimensional lives. and Or four-dimensional lives. <laughs> <laughs> four-dimensional lives. And that, that helps, you know, normalize what we do and bring it into the light. Yeah.